This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street. As you heard at the top of the show, if you have a road bike, head over to Renthal, pick up your latest accessory from Handlebars, Sprockets. They've got everything there. They're not just masters of off-road bikes, but also street bikes. So um, speaking of street bikes, Dave, you've been a busy man. Uh, Neil and I have been, you know, uh, fraternizing with roses and books and enjoying San Jordi over here. Uh, St. George's Day as a big old festival. But you've been, um, you know, you've been staying at the track. You've been to World Superbike at Assen. How was it? It was great. I really enjoyed it. It was, um, it, it's, it's great to actually see... And how diff how it works in different championships and the uh, world superbike paddock is uh, for a start it's really welcoming i think it's also just great for fans it's it's so good for fans like one of my favorite things is still the fact that they uh the fans are in the paddock when the riders ride in through like a wall of fans for park Ferme. i think that's just it's just just outstanding and you know they were handing out free prosecco unfortunately i was on my <laughs> motorbike so i couldn't have any of it but um uh, still it was great how was the uh, the spectator turnout, Dave? In comparison to MotoGP, I mean, is it is it building up compared to previous editions? Yeah, it it was good because uh, I mean, obviously we've got uh, Michael van der Mark, who unfortunately had a really horrible uh, accident, which I'm sure that uh, Steve and Gordo will get into later in the week. Uh, broke his femur; um, he's going to be out for a little while. Um, but I mean, sort of like half the main grandstand and all of the GT uh, grandstand was completely full. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a re it's a good turnout. It's not. Uh, 110,000 or whatever it is for, for MotoGP, but it's 35, 40,000. You know, it, it's more than, uh, a, it's more than a few, uh, MotoGP rounds. Neil, this is a little bit of a different kind of preview show. We're, we're talking with Sergi Sendra, who's, um, one of the men most responsible, I guess you could say, for the fine TV production that goes into MotoGP. I mean, yourself, you're on the broadcast. I mean, has it been five, six years now? You've been lending your voice to Moto2, Moto3. It's been a good half a decade, hasn't it? Yes, yeah, six years, I guess. Yeah, I think. I mean, Always after the fl yeah, after the flag. I mean, you've been many times to Saint Juice, Dorna's um, HQ, just outside Barcelona, where they have been some pretty impressive technology to be able to cover the races remotely. I just wondered, you know, can you tell us why you kind of think Dorna's, you know, TV production of MotoGP has assailed to such a point that you know it is a reference for a lot of other motorsports, and Dorna actually have meetings with. For example, AMA Supercross uh, to talk crossover of technology and presentation and all other matters. I mean, it's it's really it's, uh, it's probably their crown jewel, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's definitely one of the things that uh, Dorna are doing best um, in terms of uh, in terms of presenting MotoGP as a product. Um, obviously, we have decent variation. The racing is is pretty good. Um, at the moment, but I think just the kind of the production of the TV spectacle um, is is really top top notch, and I think you could compare it to some of the best production going in sports in general. Um, it's pretty innovative, you could say. There's always some kind of novelty at the start of a season, whether it's um, you know riding with increased sound capabilities of the cameras, the onboard cameras that we have this year. Um, you know the leather 
Cam has been something that has come in uh, in recent years and is now a regular fixture um, in practice sessions and I think racing as well. Um, you know, that's absolutely sensational. Um, and just the, the kind of the slow-mos and the, um, some of the angles they get. I was re-watching the first round of the season in Portimao, the sprint in Portimao, um, a few days after the actual event. And some of the helicopter shots were just absolutely sensational. The bikes kind of going down, I think it's coming out of turn seven, uh, downhill, you know, Portimao is such a spectacular track and to see six or seven bikes fighting at the front of a race from a helicopter shot just hanging over the uh, the big drop downhill um, was quite remarkable. So Sergi has been, I think, at the helm of Dorna's television production since the beginning, since 1992. I remember seeing a documentary that they made about the first race that Dorna covered, Suzuka 92. It was pissing with rain and um, yeah, Sergi was there, I think one of only... I think Dorna was only five, six staff at that stage. I mean, it was a very small setup. Um, it might have been a bit bigger than that, but um, yeah, Sergi's been there right from from the from the start. So he kind of knows what uh, he knows what he's doing. He knows what goes into it, and he knows how to keep it kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I love the shoulder cam. The shoulder cam is absolutely amazing because you can actually sort of see the physical effort involved in riding and the and all of the things that which they're doing. But also, I love the the fact that they're starting to introduce drones as well because I think um, uh, we've had some drones uh, drone shots of the grid, uh, and you get a really much you get a very different, very interesting perspective. Um, it's totally different to the helicopter because the helicopter can't just hover above the grid uh, for, a, for a number of reasons. So, yeah, they've, they've been there. And I know that lots of other sports have ha come to MotoGP to learn about the way that the, some of the things that Dorna do uh, and to copy them. So they've been absolutely at the forefront of TV. And, yeah, it really does look spectacular. I remember when they first introduced the 1,000, what is it, 1,000 frame per second slow motion camera and you can see so much you can actually see you know what's happening to the bow uh, to the bike you can see chatter happening you can see um uh, you know the, the way that the bike is responding so yeah big uh, uh, i mean there's plenty to criticize with dawn but you can't really fault the tv coverage the tv or the or the the tv production is absolutely just just flawless yeah i think um enrique serra is now kind of head of the tv project or production I guess you could say the role that Sergi used to inhabit I mean he's um, taken on a bit more of a consultancy role but also looking for new technologies uh, which is pretty exciting because he's a very passionate and, and knowledgeable guy um, and actually Dave just one thing you said there made me think you know it was actually quite some time ago where Dorna were pioneers in offering uh, multiple viewpoints for fans watching through the streaming service. I can remember you being a big fan of this where you know you could literally re-watch the, the race from different perspectives as you chose. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a shit. They used to have a lot more cameras and they've cut it down. So it's just basically like four pre-selected onboard cameras, but you get such a different perspective and you see so much. Um, like one of the things I will often do is go back and watch the race on. Uh, from the helicopter view because you see you you can see so much about where a rider is gaining where a rider is losing obviously the helicopter is only com concentrating on sort of one battle usually at the front um but it's uh, it, it's so instructive you see so much and it's the same from the onboard you can actually see from the rider's point of view 
uh, where they are struggling with the you know with the bikes ahead, where they've got an advantage, where they're able to close in, where they're losing out. So it's it's a really it, it's an absolutely fascinating uh, it's a fascinating perspective, and it's really I mean it's it's proper hardcore stuff. It's not your it's not your casual fan stuff, but uh, it's for me that's that and and all of the background uh, bits and bobs on the MotoGP.com website um, that is worth the the you know the the, the subscription alone. Well, Sergi's a busy guy, so we were lucky to get some time with him. Um, he's also got a, a bit of a throat problem at the moment. It's something that needs to be looked out. So um, when you listen to the interview, it's not that he's some kind of whispering Spanish mafioso. Uh, you know, he's actually got a bit of a throat issue. So excuse that on the audio. But um, it's great to have Sergi on the podcast. And uh, here's the interview that we did uh, in Austin a couple of weeks ago. It's fantastic to sit here with Sergi Sendra and talk a bit about the TV production history with Dorna and MotoGP. Uh, Sergi, uh, the most obvious question is, what are you doing at the moment? What's, what's your current job role? Because you've been with the championship and with Dorna Sports for a long time, but you've changed a little bit your orientation of work um, in the last couple of years. My new role now is, my new job is uh, Head of Global Technology. So we are taking profit of all these nearly 30 years of development, evolution, and implementation of, of something that didn't exist when we started, when Dorna started in 92. And actually, uh, I, I need to take care about many, many different aspects and disciplines that makes uh, the company to provide one of the most important assets, which is the content uh, media uh, assets, and also to make sure that we implement the new technologies uh, at all aspects that affects that. So it means quite a bit of research, knowing things about mark trends, uh, developments in technology, stuff like that. You have to keep your fingers on the, the well, pulse. Well, I have to say that um, I am the little top of a, of a big group of uh, expertise people, professionals with very different uh, disciplines. And uh, I mean, these people dedicated to write software, these people dedicated to analyze audio, these people, this engineering. There is, there is a lot of different uh, flavors in, in, in this uh, job. Uh, and obviously, it's impossible to know about everything. And more, and moreover today that the, there are so many changes no, in the technology. So uh, this, this division, technological division, by the time we put it all together, we realized that we, we, we can develop things uh, transversely, but most of, uh, most of the things that we are doing uh, are separate in terms of uh, an IT infrastructure, uh, cyber security, um, camera development. Um, then we, you, you have to, to, to also analyze the market with the cloud, with the uh, artificial intelligence, the, the, the 4K. There's so many assets. Uh, but obviously, at the end of the day, this is applied to a very spectacular sport uh, that runs during all the year with a very um, complicated logistics and busy, busy schedule. No? Sergi, tell us about when you first came into Dorna and MotoGP. I mean, you've been part of the story right from the beginning. Uh, did you come in as a cameraman? What was your first kind of touching point with MotoGP? Dorna exists since uh, 91, but the first Grand Prix that Dorna did uh, officially was in 92 in Suzuka in Japan and the TV team uh, was seven people. Two, man two people man managing the, the team and five people running the everything at that moment. But at that moment there was not so much work. We had to 
edit programs. We had to record the signal from broadcasters. So there was not there was as many broadcasters as countries and as Grand Prix. No? So my role as a director was not possible at that moment. So I, I, I decided to take the camera and I was using the camera. I, you know, I was a cameraman learning because I never I was never working in MotoGP before as a, as a cameraman. And then obviously le- learning everything that was happening in the paddock and in the pit lane and the, in the track and editing programs. Since in 94, um, Carmelo decided that Manel Arroyo was in charge of the TV. And at that moment, we started creating the standardization and the, and the concept of, of organizing how to improve and to do the coverage better. But the most important thing was looking for a consistency all around the, all, all along the championship. Because at the beginning, we went to Spain or England or, or America. No, no one was doing the same product. No one was using the same tools. Uh, uh, we use very few cameras. Graphics were really, really weak and, and poor. So because we were doing the job every weekend, we were learning, we were improving. And I have to say that has been obviously the most uh, fantastic challenge that we have ever had, no? Creating everything from scratch. I imagine working different countries, different resources, it must have been a huge challenge in some places because one of the reasons we're talking now is, in my opinion at least, MotoGP has one of the best television coverage packages I think you can find in any motorsport, and maybe even in any sport. I mean, it's the, the comprehensiveness of it, the, uh, the dynamicism of it, the information, you know, I mean, everything seems to be on screen for people that want to know about this sport. And that must have started from those first years in the mid-1990s. Well, thank you for the compliments. compliments. Obviously, when we first started, we learned it from, we, we took the good things from every country. And when we started creating our own style and, and, and plan, uh, at that moment, obviously, we were fighting against the, the elements that didn't work <clears throat> on the on the on the day to day production. We realized that uh, practice was completely different than racing uh, days, so we had to also apply uh, novelties and ways to work, um, like like for instance the camera position. I mean, when you have the privilege to go country by country with different shapes, with different circuits, you are learning more than anybody else in the world because the, the Australians were only doing Australia, so they only knew one shape. But I was the, the, the person that could that, that could visit every circuit, taking notes of every different corners, and, and, and that learning process uh, at, at all means, you know, not only for the content, but also for the, the, the point of view of the, the artistic, or the racing point of view, uh, then with the graphics also. I mean, I remember when uh, we, we took the graphics from, from an Italian company and the timing, that was a really important moment. Taking the timing in, in 99, it was meaning introducing computing people in the company that was only concentrated on a product that before was done from outside with not all the concentration of the, of the, of the days of the year. So having people concentrated com- in computing learning from something that you have to create and at a starting creating a team of designers made, made the possibility to, to, to accomplish and to supply uh, those graphics and, and those solutions that didn't exist before. No? 
And the good thing with touching something every every Grand Prix and every year, it's you have the moral obligation to improve it because mistakes and errors uh, will will come up every time, and you are doing the same job. So we we start. I think we applied a very agile scientific process that. Okay, what happened in last Grand Prix is not going to happen again. So look for a solution. Dorna, also, I have to say that Carmelo and Enrique Aldama, they made a massive effort to invest, okay, uh, on all of, on all this process because without investment, uh, without believing on the in-house solutions, we would never be where we are now, no? So this is the addition of many, many work for many people, also from, from Pilar, working with Manel in the commercial department, convincing the televisions, convincing the broadcasters, please allow us to do the job that we do every weekend. You don't bring the people. Uh, you, you, you will only do your personalization, but we will take care of the product because it's what we did last week. And this week is going to be better. And next week is going to be even better. No? So I think we convinced the broadcasters that doing the job in-house um, and, and give and providing all the tools that were necessary, the product has been improving and improving and improving. How many years did you spend as the director of the live show? Because, uh, you know, I'm sure some fans have seen footage of people in the OB truck, uh, switching camera views, directing a whole team. It's almost like a, a conductor of an orchestra, the way you have to put this whole thing together. It looks stressful. I mean, it, but you did it for quite a long time. Yes, I had the opportunity... Manel gave me the opportunity in 1994, and I was directing, uh, I was assisting directing at that time for two years. And in 96, I did my first Grand Prix ever in Indonesia. Uh, it was, I think it was, it's the most challenging thing, thing that I have done in my life. First of all, because it was my first Grand Prix. Uh, second is because we were working with cameramen that didn't speak English. So I had to learn the numbers in Indonesian. <laughs> and I was mentioning the bikes telling the numbers, you know, 52 was, taka taka, I don't know, I don't want to be, I don't remember, <laughs> yeah. but mentioning the numbers and I learned left and right and backwards and forward. So it was, I was, I lost like three or four kilos. It was just a terrible experience in terms of suffering, but it was also so, so uh, incredible because we did it. I mean, if somebody watches the race of, um, Indonesia Sentul race in 96 and 97. It was our first job uh, with local cameraman, and it's quite decent, no? But obviously, if you compare it with today's day, that we had 14 cameras. Now, today, we have 24 cameras in the track. We had practically no onboard cameras. Uh, I remember we had the, the, the RF cameras were failing. So when you learn from a difficulty and in a difficult situations, you grow a lot, you grow up a lot. It's, it's, it's the best thing it can happen in your life. Nothing is easy, you, you, you suffer, but you learn, you grow. And, and then from that moment, we started conquering the world, actually. Three Grand Prix, four Grand Prix, England, then we did Czech Republic, then we did uh, Asen. I remember when we started doing Asen instead of the NOS, the, the, the local TV. Uh, when, I remember when I started doing Australia with Australian people, America. Japan was amazingly, incredibly complicated because we were, <laughs> we were directing with Japanese people and I had a translator. So the translator was translating my orders and it took ages to understand. So when I, you know, I had to think, if I tell him this, 
and he's too late, it's going to be too late. And so it was very complicated because you, because you need to think about the delay on translating because in MotoGP, if something happens, is that everything it's 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 in a yes yeah, half a it second happens yeah. in, in less than half a second. No? So the team that was also with me, it was learning from that process, and and we created a school where only doing this job again. This is very important. We only do racing. We only do motorcycling. It's it's something that helps you uh, to, to 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 experiment to acquire experiences, obviously, but then also to grow and and introduce novelties and, and methods to, to improve. TV production and the, the coverage of sports has changed so much, you know, in 30 Absolutely. years. I mean, we talk widescreen TV, HD, 4K, uh, the connectivity, you know, the possibility that you can direct um, or coordinate, you know, coverage from the base in Barcelona. I mean, all these things have come up. For you, what's been the most kind of important uh, progression in that time. Yeah, yes, that, that that's one of another of the extremely interesting assets uh, in the history of Dorna because when we started, we were the television was four by three, so square television, terrible for motorsport, terrible <laughs> because you miss a lot of things when you introduce the graphics on top of that. So I I knew because in '92, it already existed the first HD tests in Japan. We knew we were going to a new era with a 16 by 9 format and more cinematographic. So one of my dreams was one day I will be able to put the graphics on the left with all the riders and we will not have to be covering and putting things and rolling because I hate it totally because uh, obviously the artistic part is that you can show the action without annoying with the graphics, no? So something that people for sure will realize is that we did a massive effort since the progression of uh, 4x3, 16x9, and HD to make sure that the picture was clean and, and, and grieving all the information, com uh, combine it with all the graphics that are something a part of the of the scenario. No? Then, unfortunately, the 4K, we, we already were able to do 4K, but finally the broadcasters did not request that. Uh, I have to say that it's an expensive, still today, an incredibly expensive uh, change uh, because you have to you have to throw away all your equipment that you have previously. And we grow so much until 2016, when we started uh, changing the cameras in 4K. In any case, advantages of the 4K today, the cameras are 4K, you get a fantastic quality, but we, we transfer it into HD. Instead, in the onboard world, and this is something we were pioneering, uh, why we are able to show more than one picture from an onboard camera? Because the processor, instead of being HD, that allows you to switch from four cameras to only one feed output. So people only can select one output. If you, if, you have, if you have a 4K processor in the bike, you can substitute the 4K for four HDs. Okay. Having four HDs means that I can see four pictures from the same bike. Can you imagine for the director what is, what luxury is watching Mark Marquez looking forward, helmet, boot camera and rear? It's the most amazing thing because you will be able to switch live and explain the story from different angles. But then it's more complicated. It's like an artist having 20 yeah, more but, colors. Yeah, but it, it enriches your product and, and it makes us more dynamic, uh, more creative. So I have to say that even if I had 200 cameras, if you can use the right camera at the right moment, that's not a problem. It's not a problem of having more cameras. It's a problem that sometimes you cannot explain something 
because you don't have the right view, the right angle, or the right shot. So enriching the number of inputs, it, it, it should be infinite, you know? Can you imagine that we had uh, RF cameras in all the boxes? We could pick up the reaction of every rider, of every team, instantly. Now, if you watch the pit lane, we have five guys. They are running up and down all the time or, or, or staying in the place where you predict this Peko Banyaya. You need to be there. You cannot go. Don't go to the next box. You will miss the action. So having more cameras is not the problem. Uh, and how you manage is, is, is a matter of organizing directors, um, smart people with experience and with capacity of uh, stressing themselves because it's extremely stressing to explain this story, no? Serge, I know you're very busy and we don't have so much time, but there's two more things I want to ask you about. Um, in your opinion, you mentioned the investment in some of the resources to make uh, MotoGP as good now as it is on the TV, but in your opinion, why, why is it so good? I mean, why have you and your team and the whole of Dorna managed to build this uh, level or this standard of production that I think you know, a lot of other motorsports look to as a reference? Well, I, I, I have to mention that one person that unfortunately is yet not, not with us, which is because he left this year, is Manel. Ma, uh, Manel uh, had three different visions, the technical, the content, and the commercial. Uh, my role and, and Pilar, which uh, was from the commercial side, my vision is artistic, content, and technical. So mixing all these things, make sure that you try to do a product that satisfies every single angle or every single approach. That's very important. Then this combine it with the sporting, with, with, the, with, the, with the sporting side, because you need to respect what you are telling and what you are showing. Uh, I think it, it, it makes the, the, the perfect um, cocktail to make sure you are going to provide something that uh, has everything in mind, okay? We, also, the benefit of Dorna was when you start in 92 and you dedicate all the efforts to develop something with the privilege to be focusing all the time learning, uh, well, and you don't change the management every, every year, that, that, makes, that makes a big difference, okay? Because you are concentrating people on the business that will be uh, achieving this result. I think this is the important thing. I mean, now, now we have Carlos, Carlos Espeleta, okay, bringing new ideas, bringing new re re requirements from a sporting point of view. And, and that's very important because what, how do we do now to make a better audio? How do we introduce um, an, another concept to, to, to make sure that writers uh, will listen, writers will talk? Okay, all of this is people having ideas, people introducing uh, challenging, and then you're following it and concentrate it on one goal. I mean, again, we are privileged to only do something to make it as best as possible, not the best as possible. I want to get you back on the podcast later in the year because the whole subject of onboard cameras is amazing. I mean, that's its own story in itself. Wait, and wait, I, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I know, you know, you guys have even built like a little gallery showing the history of the onboards. Uh, you know, it's been at some circuits in, in MotoGP. But um, yeah, I want to get you back talking about that. But my last question, um, we've seen the shoulder cam, fantastic innovation. Uh, you know, what, what do you, what's your personal feeling on the future? I mean, where can MotoGP amaze fans next through the TV screens? Well, something I didn't mention before is that in this cocktail of, of, of challenge and, and, and a good result, also we have to have in mind that companies, technological companies, 
that work in the market in the world, like Sony, like Audio Technica, Fujifilm, Canon, um, Grass Valley, uh, all, all these companies in the in the industry, in the TV industry, uh, like something like MotoGP because we are a laboratory where uh, the difference between a football match or football weekend is that they don't spend two days uh, testing and try and and checking things where you have access to Messi or to Haaland for for the whole two days. That doesn't exist in MotoGP. This exists. You have two days where the bikes are practicing and looking for the best combination for the race. And we can introduce changes, we can practice uh, uh, the evolution. So we were able to launch also, I believe, novelties, having a bike that is a wonderful piece of art, uh, full of technology. We were, we were more lucky because the shoulder cam would, wouldn't exist without all this um, value, uh, extra value, having so many hours, uh, interacting with, with, with the practices to, to, to have a result on Sunday, no? I have to say that the onboard is the result of an evolution. We have a museum actually explaining the evolution and the, and the evolution shows up that this fantastic laboratory that we have in MotoGP is a, a technological uh, place where you can develop things combining your imagination with the, with the company's um, capacity, like in, in this case Sony, bringing something that they wanted. You know, they, they, they launch uh, an auto-balance a sensor that everything is calculated with a, a, a tiny IMU inside the sensor. They came to MotoGP because they knew MotoGP was leaning. And thank you to the capacity of testing during the weekends, in a race would be impossible, we were able to make the evolution. We were able to provide feedback to them. We were able to, to interact with them. And then we, we, we could invent it, the Marshall camera or the mechanic. And, and this is going to bring more novelties. But also I have to say that the riders are helping and, and sacrificing themselves, uh, carrying one kilo like Alex Rins in 2021, but showing the people, wow, what is this? This yeah. is a new angle. The shoulder camera they, was He long. made a sacrifice. Yeah. Suzuki made a sacrifice at that time. Now the riders are, are, are carrying half a kilo. Not everybody is prepared to, to use the camera because maybe I have realized talking to all the manufacturers, some hams are smaller, some hams are different. Some companies, leather suites, uh, have to. We have. We are looking for a new camera. I cannot tell you more. New angle. It's going to come because it's impossible to put it on the position that other other leather suite uh, has. So we need to struggle ourselves. Have the help of the of the of the obviously FIM and IRTA helping on the security, but also everybody needs to help here. The leather manufacturer, the rider, the team, Dorna, because. To achieving something, it's a result of that combination of, of, of efforts and sacrifice. No? Well, it's like you said in the past, the people, the trust people had to have with the bikes, putting the onboard, the cameras on, the motorcycles themselves. You know, that's the process now that you're applying yeah. to the riders. It was a tragedy in, in the 90s. I mean, uh, I remember, we, we remember going to a box and where are the cameras? They were in the floor. <laughs> they were completely thrown. They, they just put it on the rules. But, okay, we put the, we put, this system will be on the rules. But when you do that... When you force the people to carry something, what do you have to do? You have to do this something fantastic so they cannot complain. So this puts an extra effort to you. And that was it happened to Dorna, no? Okay, Dorna, you force me to put the cameras, bring me the best of the market because the bike is the best of the market. It's the best prototype you can find, no? Serge, I know we're tight for time. There's definitely going to be a part two for this, everybody. So keep listening. We'll get Sergi back 
in front of the microphone again later in the season. But for now, thanks ever so much. Uh, we look forward to talking really to you again. Thanks again there to Sergi for spending the time to come on the podcast. Fantastic to get some insight there. We're going to head to a commercial break or, well, we, we're happy to have a commercial break on the podcast. But when we come back, we'll be talking and listening to Peter Bomb as well as uh, chatting a little bit about Hareth just ahead of round four this weekend. Renthal Street, Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back. Dave, one of the advantages of you going to Assen at the weekend is that you're able to hook up with Peter. Um, he gave us a bit of an update as to what he's been seeing in MotoGP recently. Uh, what's in store for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, we had a, we had an, I mean, it's always fascinating to, to, to chat with Peter. I mean, basically, uh, I spent about a, a, an hour talking to him on Saturday and then said, do you want to do a podcast? I said, sure. And then we had another 25 minutes on uh, uh, on Sunday. So uh, that was good. After the races, we chatted a little bit about uh, about World Superbikes and what we've seen. Obviously, we talked a lot about um, uh, Toprak Razgat Lioglu at his MotoGP test, how he would make the uh, the adjustment, whether he could make the adjustment, whether he will actually uh, move to MotoGP. Um, we talked a little bit about Alvaro Bautista. We talked um, about Alex Rins's win and what that really means uh, for Honda. Uh, we talk a little bit about Ducati. We talk a little bit about Yamaha um, and KTM, and you know, really, what change for KTM that has suddenly made them uh, so so competitive in MotoGP? Because in preseason testing, they didn't look like anything special. It was just uh, as we heard from Sebastian Risser on the pod, I think after Portimao, uh, when you asked him, uh, Ad, um, yeah, it, it was some really he had some some really interesting things to to, to say about that, and uh, yeah, I mean. Peter's always just very, very smart and has a lot to say. And the other thing is, he was going up and down the pits in the World Superbikes, chatting to all sorts of people. On the one hand, selling the 2D sensor parts, which he uh, uh, which he sells, but also people are a lot more open uh, to speaking to him about bits and bobs because they know uh, he knows what he's talking about. So yeah, it was it was a good chat. KTM is actually an interesting subject for Jerez, Dave, because Jack Miller won, you know, two years ago on the Ducati. And we know Alex Rins became, you know, one of the very few riders to win with two brands um, on the MotoGP grid. Uh, Miller has a chance to be the second one, but they also have Danny Pedrosa returning and uh, making a wild card appearance. So, uh, you know, there's a real possibility there that KTMs could be shaking things up. They've been surprising so far this season, so let's see what they can produce in the circuito de Jerez and Honieto. But first of all, um, let's, let's hear what, what Peter had to say to you, Dave. We're sitting here at the World Superbike Round in Assen. We've seen some fascinating races. Also, we've seen just how good Alvaro Bautista is. Um, because if you compare him with the other Ducati riders, yes, the Ducati is a fantastic bike, but um, uh, Alvaro is riding fantastically and, and doing everything perfectly. just spoke to Chess Davis in the pit lane, and he had some, some interesting extras, but okay, later do no, that. No, no, straight no, no. away? Because yeah, they were having this their celebration, like so many hundred wins, and they're putting the 600 bike and the superbike out in the pit lane now, and they're taking pictures from all the sides with all the trophies and so on. And I bumped into Chess Davis, with, which I bump in at the endurance races as well now, which he really loves to do. And I said, come on, what, what, what's, what's happening here? Because it's, it's looking almost like really easy. And he said, 
for him, in his opinion, as a rider, he said it's like everything comes together. Um, Chess has always been, oh, sorry, Alvaro has always been considered a great talent, but honestly never really delivered. And he said the difference now is the environment. Mm. The, the group of people around him in this Ducati team, um, that, that works really, that he's very sensitive for that. At the same time, he understands the tires very well. They make the electronics really work for him. The whole, whole bikes work for him. And then he has a preference for tracks like this, like Phillip Island and here, he's quite special. So, okay, what he does here today is is not giving me the best feeling for the rest of the year. It's like he's going to run away with a championship, but it's not that easy. These are the tracks that he really, really favors and everything gels together here. It's like, you know, it's it's beautiful to look at, but it's so hard for the competition. If you look at this track, you think you're never going to catch him this year, but there will come other tracks where, we're, well, where he will have not such an easy life. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, just watching him, the ease with which he's sliding the sliding the rear to get around some of the corners here has just been... And the maturity, he took yeah. his time, because eh? what Toprak and Johnny did in the weekend was the only thing they could do, is try to slow down the pace. Get, eventually, when needed, a bit aggressive to the front, stop the pace, because they don't have the really the same pace. So if, if Alvaro gets half a second, he's completely gone. So yeah, you need to stop him. at. And us is a track where you can stop riders. Two, three times in, the, in in a lap, you have to be white when you want to be fast. But being white means somebody can tuck it, tuck it under you. <laughs> and we've seen that beautifully happening. But then in the end, the Ducati is so good at the moment. It used to have a weakness like turning, like uh, speed corner, as the Italians say, yeah. corner speed. But it doesn't have to do. You know, like the very tight chicane here in Asa, they can go in uh, defensively short exit short and still make the run out of it perfectly which is for any other bike impossible it's one or the other yeah. or you have the good line and you have the exit speed or you have the defensive line and don't have the exit speed the Ducati can do what they want there so yeah hard. also what you're seeing in uh, in MotoGP is that the Ducati is has so much drive out of corners um, uh, and it seems that at least uh, Bautista has drive because he could be slow in you know slow in uh, on a horrible line yep, on the exit yep, and yep. just Getting pick pushed it up. offline and he doesn't even blink with his eyes I'm sure because he just okay if you want that I'll wait a little bit and then I come here with the power of the bike okay you're even aggressive more I wait a little bit more but in the end you know this battle didn't last very long mm -hmm. it's three four five laps and then he he has his 0 0.3, 0 0.4, and then he really checks out. Yeah, exactly. He quickly goes to three, four seconds, whatever he needs, it feels convenient with. And then he's only looking at his pit board if something is changing. And he's just, you know, putting down the laps and the laps. It, it, yeah, it, it, I mean, it must be hard being a, a crew chief in, in, in Yamaha World Superbike Team or in, or in KTM or Kawasaki because they know they left nothing on the table. There is not a lot left. On, on their bikes and on their riders and that's it at the moment at least here in asset that's it yeah that was exactly what jonathan i was saying yeah. absolutely on the limit and uh there comes a point when you just run out and you can't keep on taking that kind did of did he tell you exactly did he tell you guys what, why he crashed in the second race yeah uh, yeah just run out of um uh, just run out of front tire uh, he, he was just pushing uh, pushing the front tire he said it was really smooth it was a really smooth crash it was um uh i think he was he was ever so slightly offline and uh, he was just tried trying to push and and that's, very, that's actually very sort of nice from him to not blaming the bike because yeah. inside the team he didn't really blame the bike because but he felt something was odd on the crash asked the guys to really check the data and they found yeah what he did 
with a lot of lean angle, I think it was 57, 58 degrees of lean angle, somehow he managed to touch with his foot the shift yes, lever. Yes, that's right. And yes. then the blipper said blip, which yeah. is supposed to do, but not at that point. And blip at that point means yeah, you, right. you push the front out and then you're down. Yes, that, that's right. That's, that's what he said. He said that he's had all weekend, he's had um, some pressure on his on his uh, foot pe- or on his um, on gear his lever. lever. Yeah. I can't imagine how you can have pressure on your, sh- on your gear lever with 58 degree banking angle yeah you're not supposed to be able to put your foot there if you do that that lean angle you have the ball of your foot on the foot pack yeah yeah he somehow his... he's already preparing him for the next shift or something because he's not lying yeah, it's no. just the first thing that comes up to me is how the fuck can you get your foot there yeah. with 58 degrees you know he did take his uh, he did take his uh, uh, take his shoe off to demonstrate where he normally has uh, his uh, his foot peg. So he was he was just okay. mystified, just as mystified as everyone as everyone else. They did say they would uh, they'd been changing his riding position a little bit, but that was already in FP one. They had the same signal that um, there was he was there was some slight pressure on his on his um, uh, on his gear lever or something. But anyway, enough about World Superbikes. Well, in fact, the the transition for World Superbikes is um, obviously top. Regrets Gatli Oglu is here. Um, he's been speaking for the first time about his uh, MotoGP test. Um, one of the things which I found interesting is he said the riding position was so very different. The seat was up high and it just felt really, really strange. And um, I mean, you know the difference between you never worked on a MotoGP bike, but you know more better than any of us about the differences between the two. Why? Why? What's so difficult about making that step from uh, a world superbike machine to a MotoGP machine? Well, it's never, it's always been a big step and it's became a bigger step lately since the right high devices, David. I think that's what he, because he, he told us that the seat, he didn't like the position the way he was set on the bike because he likes to be in the bike and with the MotoGP bike, you're really on top of it. So you're really high with your ass, basically what he's saying. And all I can think of is since we have these right height devices, we need a lot of extra centimeters of space. You know, look at the at the, at the air gap you have between the wheel um, and, and the rider seat when the bike is standing in the pit lane. That's a lot more than a couple of years ago. Because when you when you lower the bike with the right height devices and then have a bump, you know, you need to have all that space for your wheel to travel. So in the end, um, the rider has to sit somewhere and he just has moved up. and. It took, it took Toprak a lot of time to get used to that funny, strange seat position coming from the Yamaha World Superbike. Um, that was one of the things. The other thing that he noticed is that the way they brake is quite different. It obviously, it's carbon brakes. Um, he said that the first time, that, well, that's, that's what he told me later in, in a little interview we did with him about braking. He said when he did the MotoGP test before, I think one or two years ago, he tested the MotoGP bike as well. He said, then I immediately decided I brake with one finger only because the brakes are so powerful. You need only one finger. But now on this test, he decided to go back to just two fingers. Um, but he said, the problem I'm having is I'm maybe too aggressive with the brake because the first thing where I look for lap time is braking late, 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 late. But in the end, I end up with no speed corner, as he says yeah. it. And then then you go quickly up to speed by, bring, by braking really late. But if you want to make the last four or five tenths, you can't. Yeah. Because you're you're stopping too much. If you start the whole braking action late, is means you have to keep on braking a little bit longer, and then you kill the speed. And that last two, three, four kilometers in most corners that you kill is killing you. Yeah, yeah. So what they're trying to do is brake a little bit early and release the brake faster to carry more yeah. speed into the corner. Remember, you were on the yes. 
it's strange that the that the Yamaha World Superbike and the Yamaha MotoGP bike seem to have very different characters because the uh, the, the Yamaha MotoGP bike lives on corner speed, whereas uh, I mean, like you know, Toprak will ride the front wheel all the way deep into the corner and almost. I mean, it's not picking it up and, and firing true, it true. out. Yeah, he rides it differently. Saying that, it would always be like it's for him easy to go to MotoGP. But the difference is in the tires. Yes. You know, the way we have to ride the bike, uh, our tires, he said, as long as I brake, it doesn't turn. Yeah. With the Pirellis, the way, maybe that's more a problem from him than for slower riders. If you brake that late and that hard with banking as, as Toprak does, you deform the, the tire completely. Yeah. And if it deforms, it understeers, it goes wide. Yeah. So you either brake earlier, less hard, and try to keep speed corner, or... Toprak found out in the end you have to just keep braking late and accept that you don't turn a lot while you're braking. So you brake, sort of miss the apex, go wide, you know, get in, park it, get out, as Casey Stoner used to say. Yes. That, that's what he explains. But in the end, that's only that only works for some corners. I mean, we are here in Asha, yes. and some of the corners last forever. Yes. There is no, I go in, I go out. There is a long time I'm in, and you have to keep speed corner in the middle of these long-lasting corners. And he, he's, he does that well, quite properly. I mean, he's not on the podium. He's on the podium with a reason. Yeah, exactly. And also, uh, uh, for example, uh, Austin, you saw a really big difference between Austin and, uh, uh, and Argentina, for example, because Austin, it was a corner. That back straight is all very slow. Co- it's a very slow corner. It's a first gear corner coming onto the back straight. Uh, the, the same with the last corner at Austin. And that's exactly where the, and there's no point carrying corner speed because corner speed is, you know, the difference between 61 and 62 kilometers an hour rather than sort of 120 and 130. So there's a, it, it's a very different, uh, kettle of fish. Um, in terms of things that changes that we've seen in MotoGP, um, for me, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, and I think we both agree the biggest surprise has been KTM because KTM in the tests they were. I'm actually writing a piece about this at the moment. Um, you know, they were 13th, 14th. You know, maybe they looked like on a good day they might just be able to crack top 10 but we've already seen um jack miller look very close to a podium we've seen brad binder win the sprint race um they it looks like a really competitive uh package so what happened first of all let's let's get to the start of this year that's usually the valencia test after the MotoGP when jack was the first time on the ktm and he was slow it was way too slow you can't be that slow he was slow in the way that valentino was slow when he jumped on the ducati yeah like you can smile in the press conference and say we need to work and I'm sure the team will do it, but you're crying inside because you know I mean you're in the shit. You know, that that's way too slow. Couldn't be done. So that was like, okay, but it's really early day then because the winter starts. I, I was thinking, okay, now KTM gets a lot of information from Jack and they will turn up in Sepang and the gap to the front will be less. But it was not. Sepang was another disaster, lap time wise. It was just not good enough. There were there were no you know, you can be slow in the total list, but there can be some positives. For example, after many, many laps with the tires, our, our lap time didn't drop so much. But there was just nothing positive. What I could see or what I can remember now from the Sepang test. So then then you had to get start worried, really. Then we went to the Pochimayo test, where, where you and me were as well. And I spent almost one day walking around the track on, on the on the surface road, which in Pochimayo is, is quite a job, actually, yes. with the up and down. Yeah. But you're so close to the track. And when there is only MotoGP all day long, 
ah, you don't need to be a genius to find out who has his shit sorted and who not. And the KTM did, clearly not. It looked like they were afraid to even think about opening the throttle, the way the bike behaved then. So they had a, a couple of big moments just on the throttle, way too early, and then they decided not to open it anymore. And more or less the same for breaking hard into corners. So the whole package looked like everybody was, I don't know how to say it, they were riding the bike, but without any confidence. They were not throwing it into the corners. They were not step, you know, spinning it out of the corner. They were just doing the laps. And, and they were all slow, basically. In the end, Brad, because Brad's Brad and Jack's Jack, they can do some lap time, but it was only masking the problem. That was the test. I'm thinking, wow, now they are in really problems. Yeah. Uh, but for some reason, they... You know, let let's be honest. They they bought again a lot of expertise from 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 Ducati because Jack and his crew chief came. So that's a lot of information. Comes the GP race Portimao Friday, another disaster. I'm like, okay, now it's not going to happen. And then from Friday to Saturday, they they find the missing piece. And then Saturday it was also a lot better. And from there on, they are competitive, but they're still not on the level. It's not a stable situation you see at KTM. Um, that. These two guys can do it. The good thing that I hear from their comments is they love the front. It's always good when they love the front because that's where you win fights. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Which is not unimportant because you're not always winning race from pole. Um, that, that's the good thing. But other than that, uh, there's no consistency in the way they perform. We're looking, we're looking for that. And even the third KTM rider, because Paul has been on the bike too shortly to, to, to take it seriously. Um, and Augusto... I think I know how to rate Augusto. So that's also a sign of where KTM is. Um, and that's that's not, not their way. They really, really need to be this year. Because let's be honest, you're not a rookie manufacturer forever. Yeah. Eh? And they they have deep pockets and they use deep pockets. They buy everything and, and ever The whole paddock is orange. Everything's KTM except in MotoGP. They have their their success every now and then. But they, they were supposed to be a lot closer. And there's a gap because Honda is not there. Yes. But they don't fill in that gap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, Speaking of Honda, nice segue. Um, Alex Rins wins in wins in Austin. So obviously there's nothing wrong with a Honda and it's a perfectly <laughs> nah, competitive nah, nah, motorcycle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm, wait, maybe after next week we have another podcast. <laughs> because, <laughs> first of all, you know, it's the people's favorite. The, the, the Alex Rins to win a MotoGP again. The LCR team on the Honda. It means a lot to me. It means it's not that bad that we were all starting to think. Me too. But I wouldn't immediately put a lot of money on, on the Honda for this year because Honda has done a lot of winning in, in Austin ever since they come there. Yeah. Obviously with Mark. Um, but also Alex Rins is quite successful always. Yeah, I mean, Moto3, Moto2, and with his, he's won them already. So yeah, he's won on four different bikes. Basically, if you had to put... Yeah, I didn't think about it that way, but if you had to put money on somebody on forehand except Peko, it would have been probably Alex. Yeah. So maybe we're not paying enough attention because he was a favorite after all. What I'm trying to say is that uh, he's just he likes that track. And there is track that you can like, but it doesn't make a big difference because everybody is there forever like Gares. But if you like Austin, which is so long, so difficult, only once a year we get there, you have an advantage. Yeah, and uh, and Alex Rins was saying, also we heard from Beefy Bourguignon on, on last week's podcast, which was really interesting. They were saying, you know, he's so, he's so good on partial throttle. He wants a lot of throttle in his hand, uh, a lot of control in his hand. So, you know, less TC, more sort of talk feedback. So he understands 
what the bike is doing and he can use that to create uh, you know drive which is what the the, the Honda has been missing especially around yep. those long you know that that, that 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 first section the twisty section uh, all of those s's and chicanes um, that was where he was making the difference yes but in the end he also was using the front the yeah. the, the, the front of the Honda which you need a lot because in the end you, he, he made up most of his time in braking for the really tight corners you know that's the Honda's trademark and he's able now after Mark one of the first riders to really use that benefit from the Honda because Carl was successful on the Honda but never really in that way he was riding it on on his day but this is the way you have to ride a Honda and Alex knows how to ride Austin and he he did use the the strong points from the Honda but it means almost nothing for me to what we're going to see next week in Jerez. That has to be the proof of the cake where we are really. Yeah. In Jerez, everybody was already 20,000 times, all the manufacturers, all the riders, and your position there is your position. Yeah. Um, from uh, the, the worst bike on the grid to the best bike on the grid. Uh, I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I'm trying to make a story. Again. And it, it, it's not quite true, except that Ducati is the best bike on the grid. Uh, Pekka Banyaya said that it's the best bike on the grid. Pekka Banyaya was basically complaining that the bike was too good because it wasn't giving him any feedback. He believed that he could do anything with the bike, and um, it turns out that he couldn't. Um, there's also been some reporting that uh, Pekka was actually a little bit offline and that was wh why he crashed. What's your view of the Ducati? Because it does seem like the, the Ducati is in a really, really good position. It is by far the best bike on the grid. It's, it's, uh, it's a benchmark. It has almost no weak points anymore. So, And when Pekka is in his sweet spot with his group of people where he, and, and he feels really confident, he, he's the best of the guys on the Ducati, especially regularly. There can be a left or right, a Bezeki or a Marini or whatever, but Pekka will be the man again. Um, but then he he did it himself. You know, it's impossible. A bike cannot be too good and does not give enough feedback. It's actually completely contrary to what, for example, Alex Marquez was telling us, yeah. you and me, when we asked him about what's the difference coming from a Honda, who was supposed to have a really good front. You know, you can make the lap time on the front with a Honda. And now you're on a Ducati. He said, like, yeah, the Honda was probably good, but it was a knife edge. Yeah. And Ducati gives me a lot of feedback while breaking into corners. So, there you are. It yeah. has a good, uh, a good front with a lot of feedback. But that particular corner where he crashed is, is the corner where you crash when you don't load enough by yourself load on the tire. Uh, it was a wrong way of explaining. If you don't put enough weight on that part of the bike by yourself, because normally, normal corners you break into and because you break, the bike pitches to the front, it puts all the load on the on the front tire, so the load the wheel is, has yeah. the has the load. That corner is where you just roll off the throttle and put it on its side yeah. quickly because it's high speed. If you time that a little bit wrongly, if you do a little bit too quickly, too much angle for the way you turn the you you change it because closing the throttle is for the bike not the same as touching the front yeah. brake. Touching the front brake means pitch. Closing the throttle is yeah, I moved a little bit the position. We go a little bit, but not as much. And I'm pretty sure he just rolled it up and overdid it a little. Maybe he was entering that corner, coming really good out of turn one, having having had a really good drive there. Then suddenly you find yourself getting in a little bit wide because you're getting in a little bit hot into turn two and then you you have two options you either take uh the problem accept it and slowly try to come back without doing any dumb or you say nah i can do it and he decided the last and he couldn't yeah um it's almost painful to see a rider of his statue saying the bike 
it's, it must be the bike. That's almost painful because it's obviously impossible. On the other hand, I understand it from his point of view, because if you allow it into your head that it's again a mistake from you, I say again because we all know what last year happened. Yeah, and also this was his second, the, the second time he crashed out of a race. You know, he crashed out in Argentina as well. Exactly, also on the various, on the situation that, yeah, but it was only you. You did it to yourself, yes. you know. Yeah. There was not somebody just putting oil in front of your front eye. No, it was just you. And so at some point as a rider, you almost have to protect yourself from losing your self-confidence. And then you just point at the bike. But deep inside, he knows it was just him. I'm sure. And Gigi knows. Yeah. <laughs> Gigi knows 100%. And now, depending on how Gigi and his crew deal with this situation, he will come back stronger or he will, or it will eat him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, again, it's really interesting. We were talking about Alvaro as well, um, uh, Paco, about the environment, about the people around him. And in the end, uh, you know, it is a mechanical sport. Bikes, the, the role of the bike is becoming more important in all of the classes. And yet in the end, it still comes down to uh, the human sitting on the machine. That's right. Yeah, that, uh, and their emotional state, uh, their, their ability to focus, their ability to their their, their comfort level with with the the risk that they're willing to take, and the, and the, the the feeling with the environment around, and the smallest thing to upset that can throw them completely off. Um, well, I think that will do for now. Uh, I shall. It's Sunday night now. I shall see you on Thursday probably uh, because. Yes, exactly. Because you're going down for the for, for the for the test as well. Because uh, the the test is is really important. We're expecting. Exactly, and especially for Yamaha, it's going to be a big te- a, a big important test for Yamaha. Uh, Honda, we should see the Calyx. Uh, we should see the Calyx frame come out. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how different that is. What um, whether that makes any difference? Obviously, it's not going to be a silver bullet because there's so many different sort of factors. I mean, they need they need a lot of work on the electronics as well, um, but they they need a, a, a collection of of small steps to Can get. Can I there. say something that just pumps up now, and I want to share it with you and our listeners? One of the reasons, because you know. That Honda HRC asked Carlex to make a sashi for the MotoGP, which they've never done before, is really, really strange. Yes. You know? So the first thing that jumps in, into my head is saying, okay, they're really desperate. They completely lost the plot. Everybody who knew something is already gone in the building of HRC, and now they start to buy stuff. But maybe there's another reason as well, because partly I'm right, I'm sure. <laughs> they lost the plot a long time ago already, and now yeah. it's really, really clear. Um, but the way that Kalex manufactures their sassy is a way that is so precise that every sassy will be exactly the same. So if you make a change in your sassy, it will exactly only have that particular change. Because at Kalex they start with a big lump of aluminium and 48 hours later there is two side, two or three uh, separate parts from aluminium that they only need to weld together and that's it. Instead of the old school way of making sashis like the Japanese still do, bending a lot of aluminium plates into shape, you know, hammering them, bending them, and then welding them. That's yeah. That way of processing, of that process is so different. Um, it's really, you know, I, I love the craftsmanship that's in it, but it doesn't make for consistency. 
because you're uh, you, you're basically weakening the metal. Yeah. Every time you bend it, you weaken it, yeah. and if you you have to understand so deeply how you are weakening it and changing yeah. the the behavior. Of it. Whereas if you're just machining it from solid, uh, you are uh, you you're not changing the internal the crystalline structure no, of the exactly. of the aluminium. Basically, it's, it's the complicated way Carlex use. It's yeah. more expensive, but yeah. it's so precise. The, exactly, and also and they're Germans. So yeah, and I, I spoke to Alex Baumgartel about this uh, one time, and you know, asking him about it, and he says like that one of their key things is their aluminium suppliers. They have so that the, the aluminium that they get supplied is already. Uh, of very very precise physical characteristics because what you're trying to do is uh, create something with a known set of physical characteristics and then uh, turn that into a motorcycle which you know use that using that it means that you can the bike will behave the way that you've calculated that you think it should behave and not get confused by the fact that there's a little that the engine mount is one fractionally weaker than you expected yeah. and it's changing yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know there, there have been rumors quite likely true that sometimes they, they send more than 10 different sashis to Mark Marquez Repsol Honda team to try mm. in one year I mean if you do that you have no idea yeah that's a clear sign you're just shooting in the dark and hopefully at one point you should you hit something but you can't repeat it no, exactly. You need it's not methodical. This is also what's interesting about Ken Kawauchi from Suzuki. Yeah. Coming up, the one thing that we've immediately heard from oh, him he has is really, really methodical. Yeah, yeah he yeah, has yeah, a yeah, as yeah, you say, yeah. he has a system. He even went back to to doing laps without wings. Yeah, which is a sign of weakness, basically. Yeah, but it's also <laughs> but um, I'm in charge now. You pay me to do the job, so yeah. you don't have the you don't document it enough. Yeah, what you did before, so I start from zero. Yeah, that's exactly. what he did. Exactly. Um, yeah, is Mark going to win the Saxon ring? <laughs> well, how much? How long from now to Saxon ring? Uh, hang on, wait. so Gareth, Le Mans, Mugello, three oh, and a yeah, half yeah, races, yeah, yeah. easy. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> no, you never know, but why not? Because yeah. Mark is still really, really dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And when when that arm has the is 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 set back in a normal position, he's there. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, Peter. Oh, it's a pleasure. Peter Bomb, thank you ever so much. Always an expert, always a legend, and great to have him on the podcast. Neil, we're going to round four, uh, pretty much a, a staple event on the MotoGP calendar. What's uh, what's your feelings about Hareth? Is it uh, a pervading sense of doom at trying to get into the circuit at some unearthly hour, or you know, some other kind of memory or reminiscence you have about this particular venue? No, it's a sense of uh, joy and excitement, Dad. Um, it's one of my favourite rounds of the year, without question. Um, it wasn't the first MotoGP race I went to, but it was uh, the one I frequented most before coming to work in the in the sport. And always love going there as a fan. Um, uh, it's a it's a cool track. Uh, there's great atmosphere, great time of year as well. Andalusia in May is uh, well, I guess it's going to be late April uh, for us this year, but um, this time of year is just wonderful down in the south of Spain. Um, and I think it's the it's the kind of complete package. You've got a, a great track with um, usually interesting racing, maybe not the most exciting racing, but great atmosphere, great atmosphere in the town as well as the track. And then you've got everything in the sort of area around it that um, makes a. a, a visiting a MotoGP round special, you know, you've got wonderful sort of history, um, beautiful town, uh, lovely landscape. It's, uh, you know, good climate. Um, it's the complete package. So, uh, yeah, no, very excited about this weekend. 
you say good climate, but it's going to be about 38 degrees. I was looking <laughs> at a weather forecast. So uh, it depends on your on your um, uh, definition of good climate. I think it's going to be a little bit cooler on race day, but it's going to be you know well over 30 degrees. And uh, th- that, to me, is going to make it very interesting because once the track gets up above sort of about 45, 50, uh, 45, 50 degrees in Jerez, the grip goes completely away. Um, we can have a horrible, slippery, slidey little, uh, uh, little track and it's going to be very, very difficult for everyone, I think. And it's going to be very difficult to overtake. Do you remember last year was probably the yep. first indication of the, the kind of current difficulties we have in MotoGP with the aerodynamics, with the ride height devices and the current front tyre at, um, you know, the, the problems riders have overtaking. Um, and if uh, temperatures are as hot as you say, Dave, then, um, yeah, it could be it could be tough again. Neil, coming back to possible narratives heading into this Grand Prix, I guess there's still a big question mark over Mark Marquez. I mean, we would assume that he is going to return. Um, you know, he hasn't completed a race yet, um, you know, a main race yet in this in this world championship. But uh, I mean, we see images of him on Instagram, you know, receiving treatment, undergoing training. Uh, you know, there is the perfunctory fitness test on the eve of the Grand Prix. Uh, you would expect him to pass that. But I guess we don't really know if there's been any more complications with his hand. Yeah, we don't. I mean, uh, there is a chance that uh, the listener will know whether Mark is going to be at Jerez by the time they listen to this, because we're recording on the Monday before the race. I messaged someone from Honda today and they said that they won't know until Tuesday morning, which suggests that it's still not 100% set in stone. I would be very, very surprised if he's not there this weekend. Um, but um, yeah, you, you, you do have to wonder how um, how that will affect him if he is there. Um, obviously, Jerez, I don't think, has been a great track for Honda in the last year or two. Um, you know, Mark was fighting for the podium, but I think finished something like 12 seconds back of the victor last year. And that was, you know, a really good display from him, you know, and he was still 12 seconds back of, of Banyai at the flag. So um, if he does come back, I'm not expecting him to be up at the front fighting for victory. Um but uh, yeah, let's, you know, hopefully we'll see him back. Hopefully we'll see Bastianini back and, um, you know, we can kind of get a semblance of a, a full grid again. Yeah, I mean, Bastianini is supposed to be riding a Panigale at Misano, I, I think, today. And we should hear from tomorrow, uh, uh, from him tomorrow. Uh, I do think that Mar- Marquez will be back because there is the test on Monday. Um Obviously, a broken thumb is is always bad, and it's very difficult around a really bumpy track like Austin. Uh, but Jerez uh, was resurfaced what two or three years ago, um, so it's in it's in very good shape. There aren't very many bumps. Um, it's a track that he knows. He's a track that he's really really fast at. I mean, you know the the, the track where he crashed his brains out and that that put him on the. Uh, put him on the slide to, to to where he is right now. That race in 2010-20 was just astonishing. When he ran wide at uh, turn five, I think, uh, turn four, yeah, just um, and then came back and chased through the field and was, uh, I mean, he was just developing so much more speed than anyone else uh, until he lost the rear and it went wrong. So, um, yeah, he is fast around here. It's going to be very interesting to see. Obviously, there'll be a little bit of... Um, uh, you know, Honda will have a little bit of spring in their step, um, but it's still it's still not the bike that it is. We, obviously, the, the reason that Mark wants to come back for, for for the test is because we are expecting to see this Calix chassis, um, which are the, which Honda are bringing. They'll bring it for the test. There's a very good chance if Mark is riding, we'll actually see it on Monday on sort of Friday morning. So uh, let's see. 
the, the test is crucial, isn't it, Dave? I mean, I don't think we can understate its importance, particularly with the you know the Barcelona mid-season test not on the calendar this year. But you do have to wonder if if, if HRC are going to throw the Calix chassis into the mix, then why wasn't Stefan Bradl testing some sort of version of it you know recently before he went to Austin to fill in for Marquez uh, perhaps there's still a question mark over whether it will appear or not no I think it I think it will appear but the, the other thing is um, there's not a great deal because uh, the circuit of the Americas is such a peculiar circuit because it is I mean there is like stop and go and there's a certain there's lots and lots of um, uh, turning and stuff but it's very very bumpy and that makes it very difficult to actually assess whether a particular um, uh, you know the, the subtleties of a uh, of a chassis whether whether they're working uh, also you know these things do take quite a long time I think they take about six weeks to machine from uh, from solid billet so you can't just sort of you know magic them out the back of your uh, out of your back pocket so they they don't want to risk a new chassis at a track where there is a good chance of crashing like we saw in Austin so you know there's a lot less uh, chance of crashing in, in Jerez they're going to be using it for the test it makes test it makes sense to give it a, a, a bit of a whirl on Friday morning see how it works out the, run it back to back and obviously you know they're building it the first person who gets to test it is, test it is Mark Marquez that's his that's his job he's the, he's Honda's number one rider so they would rather keep it for Mark than you know give it to Stefan and and uh, Stefan make a uh, uh, yeah make a mess of it and bend it ruin it before he's even had a chance to get through especially, to the especially because the, the, the thing about Calix um, chassis especially their swing arms if you look at their swing arms they're absolutely massive we talked to Peter Bond about this they're absolutely massive that's because they make these um, they use a lot of material but make it very very thin because it allows them to control flex very very precisely so um, yeah th that makes them much more susceptible to damage so uh, yeah you can't go flinging it through the through the gravel you, it's much more difficult to straighten out. Dave, I'm going to come back to you in a minute because I know you like to predict there's going to be 11 or 12 different winners uh, across the weekend. So you've got some time to think and narrow it down. But Neil, we've seen Mark Marquez win two years in a row. We've seen Fabio Quartararo win two, well, two editions in a row. Uh, you know, Ducati have won the last two, as we said, with Jack Miller. Peko Bagnaia won it by, I think, less than a second uh, last year. Any kind of thoughts? I mean, should we be looking at the Yamaha and maybe slotting it back into our fantasy teams? I mean, in fact, Quattararo has, you know, tremendous form around this circuit. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be the acid test of just where Yamaha are. They've had obviously a bit of a underwhelming start to the season, but yet Fabio still finds himself in a decent position in the championship, all things considered. I mean, he's okay, he's seventh, but um, I think he's 30 points off Marco Bezzecchi in first, so it's hardly a, an insurmountable deficit that he finds himself facing. Um, he said at Austin that no matter what bike he's been on in the past, he's been fast at Hareth, um, right the way through from Junior World Championship. Uh, you know, there have been some um, some uh, rays of light in Yamaha's season. You know, Franco Morbidelli's performance in Argentina was great. Um, Fabio was pretty impressive in the second, well, the, the, the main race in Austin, getting a, his first podium of the year. Um, so, yeah, I think there is reason for hope. Can they fight with the Ducatis up front? I mean, I... I I think Banyai's confidence surely is going to be a little dented by what's happened in the last two weekends, surely. Um, I expect him to be there. Um, and then I think Bezeki is the other name that interests me quite a lot because he's always been fast at Jerez. I think it was just his fifth race in MotoGP. 
um, when we went to Jerez last year and uh, Bezeki scored um, a ninth place, um, which, you know, it sounds nothing that special, but in, in just his fifth or sixth race, I think it was at the time, that was that was a good result at a uh, at a track or in a race when I don't think there were many people crashing in front of him. So, you know, I expect Bezeki to be um, a bit further up. He's always been fast there in Moto2. He got a podium in Moto3 in 2018, two podiums in Moto2 in 20 and 21, including the first one he had in the class. So, yeah, I would expect him to be fighting for the podium too. Any early favourites, Neil, in your opinion, from the MotoGP win? I mean, it sort of depends on, on you know, do Yamaha hit the ground running? You know, does Fabio feel and look happy from, from Friday? If he does, then I think he's going to be right in the mix, but still a bit of an unknown at the moment. So I would say, you know, you'd look at Ducati and maybe Banyaya, maybe Bezeki as the guys to, to beat currently. Dave, uh, what about Alex Rins? He won the last Grand Prix, but as you said, you know, the circuit of the Americas, like Portimao, is a, a quite a unique circuit in terms of layout and demands. Uh, Jerez is maybe a little bit more standard, if that's such a thing, uh, when it comes to race circuits. Is there any reason why we could expect Rins's uh, proficiency with using edge grip and tyre preservation? I, I guess it all comes down to the, the level of traction we find on, on the Jerez asphalt this weekend. Yeah, exactly. And like I say, if it's going to be, if we're going to have track temperatures over sort of 50 degrees, then there's not going to be very much traction at all, uh, which may actually end up helping the Hondas and especially, um, uh, especially Rins. But also, especially Mark Marquez, I don't think, I think if he's racing, I don't think you can write him off. I think he, um, I think he's a factor. Whether he wins it or not is a, is another question. The, the, the key question for Pekka Benyaya, because you'd have to say, you know, like, without looking at the, uh, the, the last two races, you would say, you know, Pekka is the, is the favorite. You know, he's just been fast in every session. Um, he's been really, really impressive, really, really quick. But the thing is, he's had, you know, he's crashed out of two races, which is, uh, generally puts your head in a bad place. It's going to be interesting to see how he can get himself back together again. It'll be up to his crew chief, Christian Gabarini, to, to try to do that. Be interesting also, Alicia Spargaro had a really good podium at Jerez last year. Um, you know, the Aprilia hasn't maybe got the results that, you know, its potential has merited so far this year, but you kind of feel that a result is that is almost going to be there. And Espargo has been quite unlucky. I think you could say, you know, with the wet race in, in Argentina when things were looking so good in the dry and then the ride height uh, device issue in, in Austin when he was fighting for the podium. So, yeah, he's another name I think you can count um, in the mix for the podium. Uh, to me, I still think that Fabio Quartararo is going to be the favourite. Obviously, he won in 2020, those two races, when it was just absolutely scorching. We're going to see very similar conditions. Uh, I think it's going to come down to whether Quartararo can qualify on the front row uh, and whether he can get away at the start. If he can get ahead of uh, uh, Banyaya. Because the other thing is the back straight at, um, the back straight at Jerez is really positive for the Yamaha because you're coming onto it with a lot of speed and the top speed I think is I think they're just clipping a 300 kilometers an hour it's not really uh it's not a top speed circuit the front straight is a little bit more difficult because you're coming out of the pair uh, of the hairpin the um uh is it now I think it's I can't remember if it's Danny Pedrosa or Jorge Lorenzo called that I think it's Jorge Lorenzo anyway it was somebody who got barged into the named after someone who got barged into the gravel at some point there um but it's uh 
yeah, I, I that's going to be the, the 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 difficult part for Quattararo. Quattararo is going to have to have enough of a gap coming out of that corner to be able to make it to, to, to turn one. But if he can do that, there's lots of places where he can make a lot of difference, you know, through three and four, uh, through five, onto the back straight, through uh, the, the, the the fantastic section, is it 12 and 13? Um, it, it, yeah, those sort of those sort of corners, those fast-flowing corners really, really suit him. So uh, I uh, I think that we're going to see... Uh, well, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see um, uh, Fabio Quartararo win a race and then complain that, bike, that his bike isn't fast enough. <laughs> Good, strange thing. We haven't heard that before, Dave. But uh, <laughs> No, no, no. Just, you know, just a good, completely out of the blue. A bit of a wild card day, I thought. <laughs> well, that's it, guys. That's a wrap for this week's show. As ever, contact us on at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. We'll also be back, of course, with the Paddock Pass podcast and note shows every day from the Spanish Grand Prix Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday where Neil, David and I will be filling you in on some of the things the riders said some of our thoughts on the day's actions uh, that's available on Patreon so go over to Patreon slash Paddock Pass podcast find us there join up to the various tiers for different levels of content thanks again to Renthal Street for backing the podcast we'll be back right after the Spanish Grand Prix with a review show of course don't forget to check out the World Superbike Show Steve with Gordo recording right after us so two podcasts this week you lucky people we'll be back next week to talk to you some more episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the libertines all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com